Beautiful song. Thanks so much, Dr. Mays and Ed, for leading our singers. That was magnificent. Hopefully your hearts are encouraged. We can barely speak his name. He's so beautiful, and he's so wonderful, and so majestic. I felt like I was just sitting in a choir of angels. You know, it's just a moving moment for me. So if you have a Bible with you, can you open up to John chapter 8? John chapter 8, we're hoping to finish this morning this incredible chapter that we've been in for many weeks now. John chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at verses 54 through 59, and so I hope that you can uh, turn there with me. I've given this sermon a title. It's called Seeing Christ's Day, Seeing Christ's Day. That's actually Charles Haddon Spurgeon's title for this particular message that he preached just on the last verse or two. You know how Spurgeon will just take one verse and run with it, but he gave the title Seeing Christ's Day, so I'm kind of borrowing that from him, and I also will give you a quote or two of Spurgeon along the way. And uh, let me read us the text, and we'll dive into our time together. The Apostle John writes this in John 8, verse 54 and following. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear such beautiful singing that magnifies the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for the congregational time and song as well as we've already sung about Jesus, the great I am. And as we examine this last part of John 8, would you speak to us through your word today in a way that would cause us to rejoice and to be glad. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, John chapter 8 has been full of diversity, disagreements, and defining moments. And we started off this chapter looking at the story of a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And yet when they brought her before Jesus, he said, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. And after they all walked away, you remember Jesus looked at her and said, where are your accusers? They've all gone, she said. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We also saw in this chapter, verse 12, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And so throughout the chapter, we've seen these incredible stories about how Jesus interacted with the woman called in adultery, how he reminds us that he is the light of the world. He is true and all others are liars. Without Christ, there's no forgiveness of sins, and without Christ, there's no hope in an afterlife, and without Christ, there's no saving grace. In fact, Jesus tells us in verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And you can almost just hear Him pleading with these Jews, believe in me, look to me, I am the Christ, I can save you, but if you don't believe, you will die in your sins. And then He says this, In verse 31 and 32, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. We could ask 
that question this morning. Are you abiding in the Word of God? A true disciple is one who abides in His Word. He remains in His Word. He stays in His Word. He, he knows the truth and He walks in freedom. The Bible says in John 8, 32, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That when you're a true disciple, you're walking in the truth and a true disciple is one who lives out what he believes. A true disciple is one who lives out his convictions. A true disciple is one who doesn't just profess Christ with his mouth, but he possesses Christ. Christ dwells in him as a born-again believer. A true disciple is a word-driven follower of Christ. A true disciple is a worship-centered adorer of Christ. And a true disciple is a witness-focused evangelist of Christ. We've been examining in this chapter that there's just no halfway with God. There's no, I'm on the fence with God. There's no partiality uh, in your commitment to God. Jesus died fully so that you can fully live. Jesus' sacrifice was in total so that you can live in total for Him. Jesus loves you completely so that your life is completely lived for Him. And the Jews here in John chapter 8, believed that they were in a good relationship with God. They believed and they claimed that Abraham was their father. And yet Jesus tells them, if Abraham were your father, then you would do what he did. And you're not. So therefore, you're not of your father, Abraham. In fact, you're of your father, he says in verse 44, the devil. You guys don't know God, he's saying to these Jews. You don't know Abraham, and you're of your father, the devil. In fact, your will is to do his desires. And so we see there's some awful lot of back and forth between Jesus and the Jews about who knows what. Of course, we know Jesus, the Lord of glory, speaks the truth, and he's trying to draw these Jews to the truth, and yet they keep digging in their hills against him. And so they come up with the most racial slur that they can think of by calling Jesus a Samaritan. They, they call him a half-breed. They say that he's half-Jewish and half-pagan. They, they go even further to say that he's demonic, that certainly he must have a demon. They believe Jesus is insane. They, they think that he's psychotic. They think that he's schizophrenic. They think that Jesus has gone mad. They're saying that he's deranged and he's demented and he's disturbed. Yet Jesus says in verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And that pretty much is where we left off last week because they didn't understand what he meant by that. What do you mean we'll never see death? Abraham already came and he died. Uh, the prophets have come and they've died. What do you mean if we obey your word, we'll never see death? And of course, they're thinking about physical death and Christ is talking about spiritual death. In other words, if you know Christ and if you walk with him and you keep his word, then you'll never die physically. Uh, or, or I should say spiritually. That was the whole confusion, right? They think physical. He's saying, no, 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 you'll never die spiritually. And then that brings us up to our point today where they just start asking Jesus there, well, who do you think you are? You know, who do you, verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And so Jesus gives three answers to these questions. Who are you, Jesus? Who do you think you are? And he gives us three profound statements. He says, it is my father who glorifies me. He says that Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
I am. So what we're going to do in this sermon is look at each one of these three statements of Christ in a little bit more detail. The first statement, our first major heading for this sermon is when Jesus responds to their question by simply saying, it is my Father who glorifies me. Now, I'm going to abbreviate this first point because I dove into it a little bit last week, but I just want to remind you in verse 54 and 55, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. What he's saying there is if I draw attention to myself, you won't believe it because you don't believe me. And so instead of me trying to glorify myself, I'm going to point you back to the Father, back to Yahweh, the covenant-making God who you say you believe in, and I'm going to point to Him and say, He glorifies me. And so we could ask the question, well, how does the Father glorify Him? And we can give you three answers to that. God glorifies Him. Your first blank is Jesus is glorified through the crucifixion. He's glorified through the crucifixion. And we won't turn there because I want to abbreviate this first point. It's by way of review so we can bring it home with some new material. But Jesus is basically saying the God of Abraham glorifies me. And in Acts 3, 13, that's exactly what that passage says, that God, the God of Abraham, glorified his servant Jesus Christ by sending him to the cross and also by raising him from the dead. And so one way the Father glorified the Son was by sending him to the cross to where he could provide redemption for the world, that Jesus went through great suffering as an example that we would follow in his steps. And all the way, all the way in that, God is glorifying his Son. The second way Jesus is glorified by the Father is point two there, sub point B, Jesus is glorified through being given two titles. We briefly looked at Hebrews 5, 5 and 6, two titles that God the Father gave God the Son was that of high priest and that of you are my son. Both of those titles, Jesus did not place on himself, the Father placed on the Son, for they were both given in the book of Psalm and Hebrews is quoting Psalm in saying that the Father has given Jesus the title of high priest. Only Christ can enter into the Holy of Holies in our behalf. Only Christ was the perfect Lamb of God. Only He serves as our mediator between sinful man and holy God. And of course, only Christ is the Son of God. He's the monogenes. He's the only one of the Father. He is fully God and yet fully man. And the third way that the Father glorifies the Son is Jesus is glorified through receiving honor. He receives honor from the Father. And 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 reminds us of one of those times when God speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so we see here in this first point that God the Father glorifies God the Son by sending Him to the cross, by raising Him from the dead, by giving him the title of high priest, by giving him the title of son of God, and then simply by just affirming verbally from heaven that this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Verse 55, Jesus goes on to say, but you have not known him. I know him, and if I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I know him, and I keep his word. And so he's kind of flipping the argument. They were saying, you don't you don't know Abraham, and you don't know God. We do, and he's already called them a liar, and now Jesus is saying, I would be a liar if I didn't make this claim. I would be a liar if I denied my own deity. I would be a liar if I said I didn't know God, but I do know him because I'm eternal. I'm the eternal son of God. I am that I am, and that's where he's heading here at the end of this passage, and so maybe this morning we could just ask the question, be careful that you don't become like a Jew 
meaning that maybe you were raised in a Christian home, maybe that you were raised with a lot of Christian teaching, and you think you know God, and yet maybe you don't, because if you deny the deity of Christ, and if you deny the lordship of Christ, and if you deny all that Christ says, then you don't know Him. And so this morning, we could even ask the question, are you keeping His Word? So many have it straightened out up here doctrinally, but then you examine their life, and they're not living for Jesus. Are you living for Him? This week, if I were to examine what you've looked at, what you've said, how you've spent your money, and how you've spent your time, and the way you've conversed with your wife or your husband or your children, could we say honestly, could you say honestly, you know what, I'm keeping God's Word. It's all of His grace, but I'm keeping His Word. There's so many in the church today that don't know Christ. And so we see here again that the Son, Jesus, is claiming that it's the Father who glorifies me. That's his first answer to their question, who are you? He's saying, don't even take my word for it, in a sense. Look to the Father. He glorifies me. Here's the second answer, and I want to spend most of our time right here on the fact that Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Obviously, verse 56 where Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, are you not yet 50 years old? And yet you have seen Abraham. So here's the debate between Jesus and the Jews again about Abraham. Basically, the Jews have said, we are of Abraham and you're not because you're a Samaritan or you are, have a demon. So you don't really know him. We're of Abraham. And Jesus has been saying throughout John chapter 8, then if you knew Abraham, you would be doing the works that he did. Abraham believed. Abraham had true faith. Abraham obeyed all that God the Father called him to do. And Jesus is saying that if the Jews really were Abraham's children, that they would be doing what he did, and they would not be trying to kill the Son of God. Now, in verse 56, Jesus is saying that Abraham did actually see Jesus' day, and this simply means that Abraham saw the Messiah and witnessed the day of his coming beforehand. Abraham saw it and was glad. The Jews, again, don't understand how that could happen. They're like, Jesus, you're not even 50 yet. We believe him to be 32 and a half at this stage. And yet they're saying, you're not 50. How could you say Abraham, who lived 2,000 years ago, that he's seen you, and you're not yet, you haven't even reached your midlife crisis yet. You're not even on the backside of your life yet. You, you haven't even had to break down and buy that convertible yet. But that happens at midlife crisis. And I'm going to do it. You guys wait out. I'm going to be there in eight years. I'm going to get a convertible, all right? So they're, they're saying, how in the world did this, how could Jesus say this? And so that's the question we really want to ask this morning. How is it exactly that Abraham saw Jesus' day and rejoiced? Let me try to answer that by giving you a quote from A.W. Pink. He says this, quote, First, Abraham saw the day of Christ by faith in the promises of God. Second, Abraham saw the day of Christ in type, in offering Isaac on the altar and in receiving him back in figure from the dead. He received a marvelous foreshadowing of the Savior's death and resurrection. Third, by special revelation, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him. And there is no doubt in our mind, but that God was pleased to show the Old Testament saints much more of the covenant than is commonly supposed among us. 
What's A.W. Pink saying? He's saying that Abraham saw Christ by faith, by type, and by divine revelation. And that's our outline for this point here. I want to give you the first blank under this second heading. Abraham saw Jesus' day by faith. That's how he saw him. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. And let's see how it is the Bible says that Abraham saw Jesus by faith. We know Abraham uh, was 2,000 years before Jesus, and Hebrews 11 records faithful men and women of the faith who did see and look towards a future salvation in Christ, though they were in the Old Testament. Here's how it says it, the writer of Hebrews 11:8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So the first step of faith was when Abraham left the land of Haran and came over to where Israel is and began to settle there. He did that by faith. Verse 9, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. The verse 10 is already telling us Abraham's looking to heaven. He's obeying God. And he's going from one place to another by faith because he's ultimately trusting in God who's a builder of a city that's not built with hands. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead. Don't you like how the Bible talks about old people? Sarah and Abraham were up there. And the writer of Hebrews is like, yeah, I remember Abraham, he was as good as dead, but they were still given to them life, right? At, to them were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. I love that second part of verse 12. You remember the promise given to Abraham that he would have a son named Isaac, that he would receive the land that God provided to him that he would, there would be a universal blessing coming through Isaac's descendant, the ultimate descendant being Christ, and Christ would provide salvation for all those who would repent and believe. And then God says to him at the second part of verse 12 that, it, that you will have all these descendants, not just one, but as many as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as the grains of the sand by the seashore. I was having a debate with my son my nine-year-old son, Nate, about what's more. Nate, what do you think's more? The stars in the sky or the grains of sand on all the beaches of planet Earth? So we had a debate. I went for, this, for the sand, he went for the stars. And we had this debate about, isn't it awesome that you could go to the beach and just pick up a handful of sand and think about, this is where general revelation meets special revelation. That God's creation of the, the, the sand and the stars that you see at night. I, I, I challenge you, tonight when it's dark, you go outside and you look up into the sky and you start counting and see how high you get. And then, of course, we know if you had a telescope, you could see so many more stars, more than you could ever count. And those are just reminders to us of those who will be in Christ because of this promise made to Abraham who will have descendants that are innumerable. Verse 13. Hebrews eleven thirteen. these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. 
and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. That's how Abraham saw Jesus. It was by faith. Not that he had received Christ personally in the same way that we would under the new covenant, yet he had faith in Christ who would come, having seen him from afar. So Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Jacob, they all died in faith. And verse 13 says that they saw the things that were promised and they greeted them from afar. They had a faith in a future redemption. In fact, look down at verse 17, Hebrews eleven seventeen. 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This shows that Abraham had a clear understanding of substitutionary atonement. That's what Abraham understood. He would have understood that God's called me to sacrifice my son when he went to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. At the last moment, God spared Isaac's life and pointed to the ram that was stuck in the bush so that Abraham could know God as Jehovah Jireh, my provider. And when you think about my provider, don't just think about a lot of money in your bank account. Think about something you need even greater, which is a substitute who would die in your place so that you don't have to. That Christ died. He's our substitute. Abraham saw it. He saw it and believed by faith that this Lamb of God would take away the sins of the world. Abraham saw Christ's day with eyes of faith. He looked forward to seeing Christ. We have to look backwards to see Christ. It takes just as much faith today as it took for Abraham. Abraham had to look forward to something he's never seen with his physical eyes. You and I have to look back at something we've never seen with our physical eyes, and we both can believe by faith. The only way that you can be a Christian today is to have faith in Christ as your substitute who died in your place so that you could be born again by his sacrifice. Well, a second way that Abraham saw Christ's day, the first way is he saw it by faith, Hebrews 11. The second way that Abraham saw Christ's day was by type, by type. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you in Theology 101, a type in Scripture is a person or a thing in the Old Testament which foreshadows a person or thing in the New Testament. So it could be a person, it could be a thing, it could be a concept that's in the Old Testament, and it foreshadows something you're going to see with more clarity in the New Testament. For example, the flood of Noah's day in Genesis 6 is used as a type for baptism in 1 Peter 3. When you hear it said that someone is a type of Christ, they are saying that a person in the Old Testament behaves in such a way that corresponds to Jesus' character or his actions in the New Testament. Scripture itself identifies several Old Testament events as types of Christ's redemption, including the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the Passover. John 3 talks about how just as the serpent was lifted up in the desert of Moses' days, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, and those who look on Him in faith shall be healed of their sin. In the Old Testament, we read about lambs being sacrificed, and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Old Testament tabernacle is identified as a type in Hebrews 9, verses 8 and 9, when it talks about the first tabernacle, which was a figure for the time then present. 
the high priest's entrance into the holiest place once a year prefigured the mediation of Christ, our high priest. Later, the veil of the tabernacle was said to be a type of Christ, Hebrews 10, 19 and 20, and that his flesh was torn as the veil was when he was crucified in order to provide an entrance into God's presence for those who are covered by his blood. In Genesis and in Hebrews, we learn about Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem and the king of righteousness. And here's the account of Melchizedek, Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. I'm saying Melchizedek, a type of Christ. Here's what the scripture says. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the, in the valley of Seveh, which is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. You see that? Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth. Who is Melchizedek? He's a type of Christ. The fact that he blessed Abraham demonstrates his priestly office. You see, he's not a Levite priest. The tribe of Levi has not yet been in place. He's a priest like Christ who will come not through the order of the Levites. Christ was from the tribe of Judah. He's kind of this picture. His priestly office of Melchizedek points to the fact that, that he blessed Abraham and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything that he owned, which shows that Abraham was submissive and subservient to Melchizedek. Abraham gave him his tithe. You don't just give your tithe to somebody, to another person. This isn't, this isn't just giving a gift. This is a tithe as unto the Lord. And the real way that we know that Melchizedek is a type of Christ is that that's confirmed in the New Testament. In fact, turn with me to Hebrews 7. We already looked at Hebrews 11. Hebrews 7 talks specifically about Melchizedek. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God. Let me just pause for a moment because I don't want you to get too far off with types. Types is, are, again, remember the definition is what you see in the Old Testament is confirmed in the New Testament. So you don't have the right as a person just to walk through the Old Testament and say, oh, this means this, and this means this, and this means this. If you're doing that, you're probably a charismatic, okay? So the idea is you have to look to the authority of the New Testament, which points you back to the Old Testament and say, remember that? That was Christ. That was pointing to Christ. That was evidence of redemption. That's what substitution's all about. So that's what's going on here. We're now referencing in Hebrews 7, this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. This is all what we just read in Genesis 14, verse 2. It says, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. So there's your clue that this is a type of Christ. He doesn't have a clear genealogy. Christ does through Mary, and you could track it through Joseph, but Joseph's not his real father because Jesus' true genealogy comes from God. 
And so it's a similar way. We're saying here that Melchizedek doesn't have that kind of genealogy or a beginning of days. Why? Because he's resembling the Son of God. He continues as a priest forever. And so in Hebrews chapter 7, we clearly see that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God as he continues as this priest forever. Therefore, Melchizedek is clearly an Old Testament type. Now, keep in mind that types are always frail illustrations at best. A lamb of the field has no comparison with the Lamb of God, nor does a snake on a pole liken itself to a true relationship with Christ realistically. There are merely, these are just merely humble pictures meant to give us insight from an illustrative point of view, and we say at the same time that Melchizedek in no way deserves an equality with Jesus Christ, but he does serve as a very interesting picture of Christ. And I believe that this is one of the most graphic types in the Bible, this one of Melchizedek, because of such clarity of how the New Testament and the Old Testament speak of it. Charles Spurgeon said on this, quote, blessed are the men and women who with the eyes of Abraham have spied out Christ beneath the robes of Melchizedek. And so we're seeing here that Abraham saw Christ's day by faith. Abraham saw Christ's day by type. And a third one here, Abraham saw Jesus' day by divine revelation. By divine revelation. In the Old Testament as today, God reveals himself by divine revelation. Today, we are exposed to divine revelation through Scripture. In the Old Testament, God often revealed himself to those who feared him. In fact, I want you to turn to this Psalm 2514, and you'll see here what I'm talking about, the essence of divine revelation in Psalm 2514, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. That word friendship has a superscript in it. That word friendship, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. The word friendship has a superscript where it says at the bottom of your, of your page there, or the secret counsel of the Lord. Or if you have an NASB, they translate it that way. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. You know what we're talking about here? Divine revelation. God is a friend of those that he reveals himself to, and it's to those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant, the rest of the verse says. So God, being God, can reveal himself in any way he chooses At any time, he uses general revelation, though it's not adequate enough. You must have the special revelation. Today, we would say scripture. In that day, scripture was still coming out. And so God was revealing more of himself, more of himself. And I'm saying to Abraham, he revealed himself to Abraham by divine revelation. Scripture was not yet written down. Moses wrote Genesis later, right? So the idea here is that God in his sovereign ability reveals himself to Abraham, and you can see that even in Genesis 17. Look now to Genesis 17, and you see one example of how God revealed himself in spirit without any physical revelation. It's a spiritual, intangible revelation. John chapter, excuse me, Genesis chapter 17, 1 and 2, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now notice God 
appeared to Abraham. doesn't say in the flesh, doesn't say in person, doesn't say tangible, just says God appeared. And that's the divine revelation of God. And so sometimes when God appears, it's just, in, it's invisible. It's God speaking in a way that He can do whatever He wants because He's God. But there's other ways that we see God reveal Himself in the flesh. Now, let me be careful here. I'm talking about God revealing Himself in the flesh is what theologians call a theophany. It's a manifestation of God in the Bible that's tangible to human senses. God does not have flesh. He is spirit. And yet a theophany is when He reveals Himself through a human object. A subset of a theophany would be what's called a Christophany. And a Christophany would be seeing Christ, the appearance of a pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament, which means before Jesus was ever born to the Virgin Mary in the New Testament, Christ shows up as the angel of the Lord, as the fourth person in the fiery furnace. And I believe in Genesis 18 is a theophany, more specifically a Christophany, where Christ shows up in a tangible way. Look at it, Genesis 18 verse 1, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Remember, Genesis 17 once said he just appeared in spirit. Genesis 18 says the Lord appeared to him by the oaks in the heat of the day, and then it says he lifted his eyes and he looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So no longer do we just have a, a revelation of spirit, spiritual revelation. We have a physical revelation. There's three men in front of Abraham on the afternoon that he's hanging out by his tent, and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. He gets prostrate before these three men, and he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they say, do as you have said. We're already seeing here, there's something divine about this. Abraham calls him Lord twice, first time using Yahweh, the second time using Adonai, and he bows before him. One of these three men was Christ. The other two could have been angels, and Abraham's before them, and he's begging to be blessed. He wants to have the favor of the Lord in his life, and so he exercises incredible hospitality. He wants to provide food for them, and in verse 18, 6, Abraham went in. What, what do guys do, by the way, when they need food real quick? Honey, we need some help, right? He runs into to Sarah and said, quick, three seeds of fine flour needed and make cakes. Notice, ladies, Sarah did not complain or whine about, did you invite some more company over without telling me? She just says, yes, Lord, my master, right? But uh, Abraham desperately is wanting to provide a meal for the Lord, right? Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and he gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds, kind of like yogurt, and milk, and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Another reminder, they're eating. So there's a physical person. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. We see the, the, the divineness of this situation. And so what I'm saying is God revealed himself to Abraham not only by faith and not only by type, but by this divine revelation of, 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 of showing himself to Abraham. I love even in Genesis 8, 14, you got to look at this verse because he tells them he's going to have a son. They think they're too old. 
Sarah laughs, and then he says in Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? You know what? When God reveals himself to you through divine revelation found in his word, that's what you need to take home. There's nothing impossible with God. When God wants to reveal himself to his servants, to you. Remember, Abraham saw Jesus in his day, and he rejoiced. And we have the same opportunity to see him. And when you see him, this is what you ought to be reminded of. There's nothing too difficult for the Lord. How could this encourage us today when we hear these words being spoken to Abraham? Because the principle is still true. There's nothing too difficult for the Lord. What problems are you facing in your life today? What sin struggles do you battle day in and day out We should take great comfort in these same words. What what problems are you facing in your life today? God is faithful, right? If you're discouraged, if you have a difficulty, God is faithful. If you have a wayward child today, take heart that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Despair over debt or marital problems, nothing is impossible with God. Do you see the importance of this passage for your everyday living? It applies to those that have problems in life, that have struggles, they want to hear from God, and God says there's nothing too hard for the Lord. That's what happens when we understand that we could see Jesus' day, that we can rejoice in the fact that my God is faithful. He will bring me through. Those facing infertility, is your problem too hard for the Lord? Those facing singleness later in life, is your problem too hard for the Lord? It may be God wants you infertile. It may be that God wants you single, but I'm just saying He's enough, right? He's enough. Those facing overwhelming illness, God is able to meet your needs. Those who look at their rebellious children and feel hopeless, the problem may seem beyond you, but it's not too difficult for the Lord. Those who face old wounds that seem impossible to overcome, is it beyond God's power to mend? Those raised in dysfunctional homes, God can unravel the mess and heal the pain. Those who look at the cost of a college education and say, it's impossible. Do you really think it's impossible for the God of the universe? Those who feel that their marriage is hopelessly over. The God who made you can generate reconciliation and renew love between a husband and a wife. Don't give up hope. Look to God today. Look to His Word. See His power. Nothing is too difficult for Him. And that's what ought to be happening as just as it did with Abraham. He saw His day by faith, by type, and divine revelation. And I'm saying you have that same opportunity to see God by faith, by type in Scripture, and by divine revelation. And when you see like Abraham saw, you can rejoice and be glad. Incredible. That's the response. This word rejoice means to be exceedingly joyful, to exult, to be overjoyed. This would be greater than the squeal of a young woman when she gets engaged. You know you're dreaming about it. One day you want that handsome man to come and get on one knee on the beach and you're going to go, Woo! Yes! Right? It, this is the, the excitement that you ought to have, more so than when your favorite team wins the championship game right? Greater than if you were to win the lottery. And I would recommend not playing the lottery, by the way. But the idea is sometimes, you know, we get so excited about little things. We're having steak tonight. Yes! 
And it's like, but this is like the Lord of the universe reveals himself, and Abraham rejoiced exceedingly, abundantly, exuberantly, and he's also glad. Where does your happiness come from? Does it come from the revelation of God through his word? Or does it come from you had a good day, bad day at work? Good day, bad day with the kids. Good day, bad day with the wife. Look, I understand. I'm human. I have all those same good days and bad days. But we need to learn as a church and as a people, Christ is enough. And I can rejoice in him. And I can be glad in him. Even if everything else tanks, I have him. Listen to the excitement even of, you remember that verse, Isaiah 40, 31? You know this verse. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Sometimes when you see Christ, you feel like mounting up on wings like eagles. It's like you're flying. It's that spiritual high where you're like, man, God is so good. I want to tell everybody about him. I'm going to witness to everybody I see today. But not every day is like that. So we, sometimes we mount up with wings like eagles, but then the next part of that verse says some will run but they won't be weary. So sometimes you're flying, but sometimes you're running. It's a steady pace. Day in, day out, you're running hard after God in his strength, for his glory. You're not flying, you're running. And then the verse says, and they shall walk and not faint. Sometimes your spiritual life is a walk, but you will not faint. Abraham saw and was transformed. Abraham believed in Christ and was found to be a friend of God. And the same can happen to you. God gives us capacity at different stages of life to respond with great exuberance. Sometimes it's just being glad. Sometimes you're saying, you know what, it's the joy of the Lord that is my strength. But the idea is you're never left without power through the gospel to be able to at least say, I can rejoice in my salvation and be glad. And so these are Christ's answers. They're asking him again, who are you? He says, at first, the Father glorifies me. Second, he says, Abraham's seen me. And then third, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Verses 58 and 59, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What does Jesus mean? Your next blank. What does he mean here? Before Abraham was, I am. Notice Jesus didn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, I am. This is nothing less than a full claim to deity. Only Yahweh spoke like this. It's the words of the Lord when he met with Moses in the wilderness in Exodus 3 through the burning bush. And Moses says, who will I say sent me back to Egypt? And God said, tell them I am that I am. That's my name. And this is what Jesus is saying. Make no doubt about it. In fact, the way we know this is that what Jesus says is also encapsulated in how they respond. Verse 59, so they pick up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. How do the Jews respond? They know what he's saying. You know, sometimes people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. He's just a created being. He's just a good man. He never, he would never, nobody's ever claimed that. That's exactly what he claimed. He said, I am. They, they understood that in the context of all we've looked at in John 8, the Jews said, uh-oh, he's claiming to be God. And that's either blasphemy or it's the truth. They took the route of blasphemy, and so they pick up stones to kill him. Thus ends this chapter. Such a, a sad ending that it begins with the Jews picking up stones to stone a woman caught in the act of adultery. They had not learned about mercy 
They had not learned about the sovereignty of the man that they spoke to. Instead, they argued and ridiculed him, and they start the chapter wanting to stone the lady. They end the chapter wanting to stone the Lord of the universe. Yet his time had not yet come. And I wonder how you would respond to this Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, Adam, I'm just not sure where I'm at with God. Let me encourage you. Look to Christ. See him in all of his glory. Only in him can you rejoice and be glad. Charles Spurgeon says, again on this passage, Abraham was a great saint, a mighty saint, a clear-eyed saint whose gaze pierced through those 20 centuries and beheld his Lord. Yet after the flesh, he was the father of a bleary-eyed generation that could not see the eternal light, even when it flashed directly upon their eyes. I think there is nothing that is more full of warning than this to those of you who are descended from godly parents. Spurgeon writes, I charge you before the living God, put no confidence in your descent. You must be born again. How true is that, right? Doesn't matter if you're at the master's college, university, doesn't matter if you're from a Christian background. What matters is where are you? All of these Jews were from a Christian background, and yet they rejected Christ. Won't your response be different than theirs? Won't you repent and deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow him? Won't you just turn from your sin and turn to Christ? You can only do it by faith. Just like Abraham saw Christ, takes the same revelation that God would provide for you so that by faith you too can see Christ. And not only that, but for those of you who are believers today, it's by faith we look forward to a second coming of Christ. In fact, one more time in the words of Charles Spurgeon, we stand as it were on a narrow neck of land between these two seas of glory. Look back, there is Christ's day of mercy and salvation, reconciliation, death, conflict, and victory. Now look forward and see by faith that sight which the apostle describes, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God in splendor such as was never were before and which shall never make the sun itself, or it says, in which shall make the sun itself be ashamed because of the greater glory of Christ, the son of righteousness. Boy, what a way with words. The sun that we know in our solar system will be ashamed when we see Christ return, who's the true son of righteousness. So how can we respond to all of this? That take-home section gives you just three practical questions. Number one, are you glorifying Christ with your life today, this moment? Are you glorifying him and believing him and following him and serving him and trusting him, adoring him? Number two, are you rejoicing and seeing Christ's day? That may be all you have on some days. I'm just rejoicing in the fact I'm saved by the grace of God that he's opened my eyes to the gospel and he's shown me Christ. That's enough for me. Number three, are you in awe of Jesus who is the great I am? Have you seen Christ's day? Has it changed your life? Does it give you hope? I pray that this week you would meditate on these things. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to finish John 8 in such a powerful way as Christ again declares himself to be the great I am. 
as we see how he presented himself even to Abraham by faith and by type and by divine revelation. A lot of heady theological things to think about, and yet each one of those points to the simplicity of the fact that Abraham looked forward to Christ in the same way we look back to Christ. And we want to do so with eyes of faith. And we want to do so in a way that would cause us to be exceedingly joyful. God, forgive us for the way that we fall into spiritual stupor. Forgive us of our apathy. Help us today when we walk out of here and we think about the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore. We would think about your great love for us and the way that you call us near, out of darkness, into light, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it's in his name we pray.